0: Welcome to the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast, I'm Scott Kahn. Because Purim is coming up, we're going to be re-releasing three episodes over the next few days that are directly related to that holiday. Today, in preparation for Parshat Zachor, I'm proud to offer an episode from last year with Rabbi Aryeh Klapper dealing with questions surrounding Amalek. How should Orthodox Jews relate to the mitzvah of wiping out Amalek, a Torah law that might seem immoral? What are we remembering when we think of Amalek? And is there a message within that resonates with committed Torah Jews living in this century? I hope this episode will give you food for thought as we move toward Parsha Zahor and Purim.
1: And one of the things that we should have learned over the past 20 years, but unfortunately don't, is that rabbinic statements framed in the language of halakha can have deadly consequences. When you call somebody, the prime minister of Rodev, eventually somebody's going to shoot them. So if you call, put insert group Amalek. Somebody is eventually going to massacre their children, God forbid.
0: I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. While scrolling on Facebook... I saw that Rabbi Aryeh Clapper posted that he had discussed the question of whether the mitzvah to destroy Amalek is a chok, meaning a law which has an unknown reason, and I wanted to know more. He was very gracious, and we had a fascinating and short pre-Purim discussion of the meaning of Amalek in the world today, a world which often denies the very existence of absolute good and evil. We'll get to that discussion in just a moment. First, let me remind you to share this podcast, rate The Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out JewishCoffeeHouse.com for The Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. The Orthodox Conundrum is looking for sponsors, either to promote your business or organization, or in someone's honor or memory. If you want to reach thousands of listeners every single week, write to me at scott at JewishCoffeeHouse.com. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffee House podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way to reach hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. But if you want to start a podcast, you need to make sure that it's really good, both in terms of content and production values, so that you will be noticed among all the other podcasting options out there. If you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds and thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast and one that is of the highest quality, and we can help you make that happen. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to JCHPodcast.com to learn how we can help you make a high quality, effective, and entertaining podcast. Rabbi Aryeh Clapper is Dean of the Center for Modern Torah Leadership and Rosh Beit Midrash of its internationally renowned Summer Beit Midrash Program for Men and Women, which is currently accepting applicants. Rabbi Clapper has published and lectured extensively on the role played by Amalek in Orthodox Theology and Rhetoric. For more information, please see his Wikipedia page and also check out the links in the show notes of this podcast. Rabbi Aryeh Clapper, thank you for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast.
1: Thank you very much. Great to be here, Steph.
0: I want to talk today, as we approach Purim and also Tanit Esther, the meaning of Amalek in our world. And the genesis of this conversation was actually a Facebook post I saw you put up a couple days ago. You are in Israel right now. and You mentioned that you were at one place saying that, oh, you didn't realize that in Israel, Parshat Zahor is really the beginning of Purim, which is absolutely true. And you talked about, is Amalek a chok? That was one thing which you said almost in passing was something that you talked about. That itself... Leads to other questions. Which part of Amalek? Remembering Amalek or destroying Amalek? There's so much to discuss. And because traditionally this is the season where we discuss these issues, I think it's important for us to get a real handle on this. Then let's start with that exact question. Is Amalek a Chok? Chok meaning Allah whose reason we don't know. Is Amalek a Chok? And please define that question as you will.
1: So what I say in these shurim is that the, the idea that there's a distinction, that there are mitzvot that have no purpose at all, is something we get from Rashi, but that most Rishonim, the Ramam especially, the Radak, rejects. They think that all mitzvot have uh, have rational purposes. And in that context, of course, Amalek also has a rational purpose. But what I suggest is that there are mitzvot that in particular times we need to relate to as Hukim, And that treating any genocide as being justifiable rational- rationally is completely out of place in our world. And I get this from uh, an essay by Rav Lichtenstein, which has been followed up by his son, Rav Moshe Lichtenstein, in which um, he argues that the that the reason that Shaul lost the kingship was not because he failed to kill Agag, but by like failing to kill Agag, he implied that there was some way to rationalize the commandment to commit genocide, and therefore, and that turned his killing of the rest of Amalek into genocide.
0: In other words, the very fact that he was willing to save somebody on whom he had mercy implied that it was pure genocide as opposed to, I'm just following the will of God, I'm doing everything he said.
1: Exactly right. And right, and so um, right. So I think that the idea behind Rav Lichtenstein, Lichtenstein is that Amalek has to be an absolute chok. Anytime you think you can rationalize why you're committing genocide, you're doing it wrong. And I think it ties into all the commentaries who say that the mitzvah never applies until you know Um, right? So there's no way it can be carried out in the real world. And therefore, I think, you know, the first thing I would say about Amalek in this world is that anytime somebody seeks to apply Amalek to another case, other than genetic Amalek, what they're doing is rationalizing it, and thereby, by by Revlipsonstein's criteria, they're turning the people that they convince into mass murderers.
0: Okay, then let me ask you about the well-known Brisker approach, I think it's originally said the name of Chaim brisker, though I'm not sure, that any entity, meaning any nation or community that has the singular goal to destroy the people of Israel has a halachic din, a halachic status, I suppose, of Amalek with all that implies. Now, I do know that Rav Norman Lam, Zatzal, wrote in an article, which I read recently, that he takes this as homiletics rather than as a legal reality. However, I do know that some people understand this literally, that that's how the briskers understand it. What do you say about that?
1: So um, I have on my search, here, right? the, uh, Dr. Stanley Boylan, in, uh, in the halakhic perspective in the Holocaust, uh, quotes the rub directly as saying that actually it's not Dinah Amalek. We have a shame Amalek, but not Dina Amalek. And that's a way of trying to allow the category of Amalek to exist without the command for genocide. It doesn't apply the women It children. doesn't have a
0: command, even though you can call him Amalek, but it has no halakhic ramifications.
1: It doesn't have those halakhic ramifications. Um, but I think that the, you know, and I, in I point out, I think this is uh, an insupportable vort in the Rambam. Just hal- pure halakhically, it's insupportable. And I think of Lichtenstein's letter, which originally was written, you know, to Prime Minister, Prime Minister Begin in the aftermath of the Sabra and Shatila massacres, um, I think was written directly against this. And if you look at the other, categ- the other categories when people have applied on the lake, uh, most recently, so we don't, we're not political, there was an article by non by rabbi uh, two or three years ago, I think, maybe a little more, more than that, but she argued that those who oppose abortion are Amalek. And most recently, the editor of Chakira published an, op- an, an editorial in Chakira and then doubled down saying that all liberal Democrats are Amalek. And one of the things that we should have learned over the past 20 years, but unfortunately don't, is that rabbinic statements framed in the language of Halakha can have deadly consequences. So when you call somebody, the prime minister of Rodev, eventually somebody's going to shoot them. So if you call, put insert group, I'm lake, somebody is eventually going to massacre their children, God forbid. And therefore, um, yeah, I think that it would, and I've written this explicitly, that we should stop quoting that brisker vert because we should have learned by now, maybe there was an era where that was not the case. There was another controversy about this when um, Professor Ellie Stern of Yale, I think misinterpreted a long article by, by Rebukhan Wasserman as calling for the, you know, for the extermination of leftists. I think that was wrong, but if he could make that misinterpretation, probably somebody else could also. So I think we should, I think we should you know, declare a moratorium on the application of Amalek, Mechiat Amalek anyway.
0: All right, then let's move on to Zechirat Amalek, the commandment to remember what Amalek did to us. If we're not going to really emphasize the idea of destroying Amalek, then I'll ask two questions about that. First of all, what exactly is requirement to remember Amalek? And second of all, why is there such a strong emphasis on it? In other words, Parshat Zachor might be the Shabbat that the most people go to shul of any Shabbat during the year because you can't miss Parshat Zachor, even though there are opinions that say, for example, Parshat Parah is also Midorite to Torah law. And yet Parshat Zachor is the one that everybody has to show up for. And of course, all of Purim, from some perspectives, is built around this concept of remembering what Amalek did. So how do we relate to the law of remembering Amalek?
1: I think you suggested to me in an email, and I thought I thought that had a lot of truth to it, that Amalek stands as a symbol that there are things that are evil, there are positions that are evil, and it's really important that we put up as a marker that we don't think that all that all ish, moral issues are relative. I think there's even a, a stronger position, which emerges from the Rabanel, that Rav Moshe Luxenstein's version of his father's work is actually directly opposed to, but it's, it's important. The Ravinel says that Somebody does something to you, and the something that somebody does to you, right, generates what we would call a cycle of violence. You can easily forget that there's a right and wrong involved in it. And so it's important to constantly, right, you know, if the battle is ongoing, not to say that, you know, the first time that you slip in the battle, all the morality has shifted. Now you're just two school children fighting, you know, fighting, and he started, he he started. No, there actually are principles behind it. Uh, so I think that's a really valuable idea, also to recognize that it's true that in the course of a moral struggle, there will often be moments where the side that is fighting for good does something that is evil, and the side that's not fighting for evil does something that is good. But that there's a value in keeping in in keeping track of the large picture and saying, no, you know what? When you're fighting battles, you often do things wrong, but there's still an underlying right and wrong of the situation uh, that matters. I think that the mitzvah of the chiddush you know, it has consequences that are often valuable and is not as dangerous as the consequences of the mitzvah of thinking of the mitzvah of Mechir Amalek is rational.
0: How about the fact, though, that the mitzvah of remembering what Amalek did really presents things in absolute black and white, very much not the way you just described, the way things usually are in the real world. Yes, there are exceptions. We can, I mean, I don't want to start saying the Nazis occasionally did something good. As far as I know, they were pure evil. But largely... Even if you look at the war now between Russia and Ukraine, it seems like there's a good guy and a bad guy, but obviously there might be some good guys on the bad side and some bad guys on the good side, and your political positions aside, generally in the world, most sides have a bit of right with them even when they're wrong and a bit of wrong with them even when they're right. So how do we understand the black and white nature of Amalek? If I were to say it almost disrespectfully, I don't mean it like this, but almost the cartoon villain, all bad all the time. How are we supposed to relate to that kind of understanding of Amalek?
1: So I, I think that's exactly the point. Um, I, I love quoting Lincoln's second inaugural, where he talks about with courage and the right as God gives us to see the right. That you can never really be certain, and situations are never absolutely black and white. But you have to make decisions anyway. And right, so sometimes you have to act as if things are black and white, even though they're not. And so I'm a like as a reminder of that. You know that at the end of the day, when you make a decision. It doesn't matter so much whether they're making a decision because it's, 50, right, because it's mostly right or wrong. Right. You have to act that way. And I think that it's valuable to be reminded that understanding understanding very deeply can be a, a way of avoiding responsibility for taking action. Uh Lichtenstein liked to quote a dialogue between Voltaire and some salon woman where the, uh, in France, where the woman says to Voltaire, to understand all is to forgive all. And Voltaire responds, let us not understand too much, that let us therefore not understand too much lest we forgive too much. Mm-hmm. Right? So I think that's the that's that idea. right? You know, Yes, it's always possible to understand the point of view, and you can write a much more complex version of it. And there's a lot of value of that a lot of the time. And it's also important that sometimes you just have to say, And yet yeah, you also do things to them, but you know what? In the big picture, that's right? there's a right and a wrong, and you have to keep that in mind.
0: I think that's an important point nowadays, especially because we live in such an age of moral relativism when looking at everything in the world, everyone is constantly trying to say that, well, you know, really, both sides are wrong. (laughs) Very rarely will we say both sides are right. Both sides are wrong, and uh, you can never look at yourself as justified in any way. In particular, of course, I think about the conflict between Israel and its neighbors, whether the Palestinians or other Arab nations that have not yet made peace with Israel, or non-Arab nations that have not made peace with Israel, and... Too often, I think, that even among religious Jews, we hear this narrative that Israel is really in the wrong, and by so doing, we're kind of saying Israel is illegitimate. It's one thing to say that Israel has made mistakes, and there are some things it needs to do better. It's another thing to say that Israel, therefore, because it has made some mistakes, is completely in the wrong, and its case is not justifiable. That's completely wrong. And of course, I'm not comparing Israel's enemies to Amalek. I am not doing that. I am willing to say, however, that Israel's narrative is a just and right narrative. And even though Israel can make mistakes, as does any country, it doesn't fundamentally undermine Israel's entire right to be a state or its fundamental justification as a good country. Too often, I think even religious Jews lose sight of that.
1: Right. And especially you can't be paralyzed by the existence of of some element of wrong on your side and right on the other.
0: Mm -hmm. I think it's very true. So let me ask you, Robert Clapper, how do you relate to Purim today? What is it that we're celebrating on Purim? And the reason I'm asking that is that it's not just the destruction of Amalek. I know that some people have suggested, and I'm not, I'm not agreeing with this, but they say, it's not just that we destroyed Amalek, which was genocidal towards us. In response, we were genocidal towards Amalek. We went and destroyed them for no purpose except to destroy the anti-Semites out there. Now, presumably, we would say those are people who were trying to kill Jews. It was a Effectively, self-defense. But how do you relate to that celebration? What exactly are we celebrating on Purim?
1: You know, so I, I'm much happier, you know, instinctively celebrating the fact that we were saved and the fact that and the fact that we killed them. <laughs> and I think that's probably a. Uh, yeah, I would probably recommend that uh, recommend that to others. Uh, I don't see any evidence that we committed a genocide. Right, that we, we there is no evidence that we killed their children. I don't see any hint in the Megillah that we are carrying out the mitzvah of Mechirah Amalek. Uh, I think there was a battle. We were in danger, and we won. Um, And then we could talk, you know, and, and I think uh, David Silber has a really, you know, really good reading um that you can watch, you know, the Jewish religious sensibility develop at the end of the Megillah, that the mitzvot of Matarot of Yenim start coming in uh, over time, because it takes time to move from, you know, from a war footing to a constructive society. Uh But in one of the the ideas I like is a like, Gemara, I think, in Makos, which says that there are more are in um in the in the cities of the tribes who were the halusim because even though everything they did is justified but just the act of engaging in war is um is bad for your soul
0: uh-huh.
1: uh, unless you're really constantly kind you know over time individual people can care but as a group it's going to write it it's going to course in you and so there were always more roads spin in that you know i don't know if that's true i hope it's not true of contemporary wars. we have different kinds of damage that soldiers suffer nowadays but that we might take you know i'm not i i I don't focus. These, I don't focus my Purim celebration on the reenactment, reenactments of the killing of the anti-Semites.
0: I've heard that Professor Yisrael Leibowitz used to spend the first day of Purim in Jerusalem so he wouldn't have to celebrate it, and the second day Shushan Purim outside Jerusalem so he wouldn't have to celebrate it. Regardless of the halachic propriety of doing so, he obviously was bothered by the question I just asked, which again I'm not agreeing with. I'm just asking for your perspective on it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I just say, you know, but I'm told that, you know, that is that's one of the stories that are not true, but they don't oh, tell okay. stories like that. They don't tell stories like that about you and me, right? So that's like it's the kind of thing that Professor Laybours would have done. Uh I think there are also some people who, as a capora for him, you know, try and do it the other way around. <laughs> that's certainly true. Okay, I, you know, I think that the risk there is that you end up delegitimizing self-delegitimizing self-defense, and Professor Laybours ended up, you know, in in a situation where. You know, while well, he's a fascinating thinker. We ended up calling Jewish soldiers Nazis um, because of, because of treatment of the Palestinians, and I think that's you know again, I think that's where the distinction between the chira and the chia is really important, um, right? That that if you can't if you can't pr- preserve any situation, which you say, you know what, they tried to kill us, right? We killed them first. That's good. Right. Uh, another way of, of embodying it in Jewish tradition is that we say that the, God stopped the angels from singing when we crossed, when we crossed, when the Egyptians were drowned in the sea. It didn't stop us from singing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we end up compromising and we say Hallel only on the first days of, of Pesach, which were reenactment when we were there and not when we, we remember it as history. I think that's also a really important distinction to what extent Perm is reenactment. As reenactment, there's more room for celebration of, of what we did. And if, to the extent that it's memory, then I think that it would be very dangerous to um, to do it that way.
0: Rabbi Clapper, I want to ask you something else. I've been speaking to several people who have argued with some of the approaches which I've presented over the past several months, which have implied that there is an ethic independent of halacha. And what you're saying now about our moral obligation vis-a-vis Amalek, or specifically the fact that it's a chok, something which you can't understand, the fact that when it comes to the mitzvah of destroying Amalek, it should be absolutely put out of practice and assume that it remains a purely messianic hope slash uh, necessity, call it what you will. So, I'd like to ask you in those terms, what do you think about that idea? It is a larger question, of course. What do you think about the fact that? You're assuming right now that the Torah is not necessarily giving me a moral approach. It's giving me something which I have to know. But my morality comes from elsewhere to say that this is not something which I want to apply. The reason I'm asking, again, is because some people would say, if it's in the Torah, it's by definition moral. And the fact that I don't understand it doesn't mean that I shouldn't do it. It means that I, of course, should do it and rationalize it as necessary or don't bother rationalizing it. The Torah says it's good. So by definition, it's good. What's your approach when it comes to that?
1: Um, and so I need to you know, mention, you know, of course, around this article about this, where it becomes um, a semantic question, um, because there are, it, there are broader notions of Torah than halakha, and there are broader notions of halakha than things that are clear in books. But that's not the way I answer it for my students. The way I answer it for my students is by quoting um, the following sigye. The The Gemara says that there are three things that you have to give up your life rather than do. Right, adultery, let's short, you, know, adultery slash incest, and, uh, and murder. The Gemara says, What's the source for it that you have to give up your life rather than commit idolatry? There's a Pasuk which says, You love God with all your heart, and all your soul, even if He takes your soul. Okay, how do we know that you have to um, give up your life rather than commit adultery? So the answer to that is that there's a Pasuk that draws an analogy between adulterous rape and murder. Okay, now the Gemara says, but how do I know that I have to? Right, if you're telling me that the reason I have to give up my life rather than commit adulterous rape or commit rather adul- um, is is um, because of an analogy to murder, how do I know murder? And the Gemara says, murder I know because it's just rational. But who says that my blood is redder than yours? Now, what's powerful about this sugya is you would think that the question of what you have to give up your life for is maybe one of the central questions that a religious tradition should answer. Anyway, the Torah doesn't answer it. Not only does the Torah not answer it, the Torah says that you can't interpret this book properly unless you have that moral presumption, because you won't know what the purpose of the analogy between adulterous rape and murder is. So that sugya tells you that you have, that there's a morality which is prior to halakha, and you have to interpret halakha on the basis of it. Where that morality comes from, you, know, it comes from the, you can say it comes from the totality of Torah, you can say it comes, from, right, it comes from something that God implanted in you. You can say it comes from reason. That's irrelevant. But You can't say the halakha is self-sufficient because there you have a sugiah, which tells you that one of the most fundamental issues in halakha and in interpreting halakhic texts requires a prior ethical commitment.
0: But some people would argue that that prior ethical commitment we have now, even if theoretically it is implanted in us by God or it comes from our knowledge of Torah in general. For most of us, it comes from society, and society's morals change. Society's morals are not the same as morality, say, 200 years ago, and therefore, how am I to know whether my morality now, which I am imposing on the Torah, so to speak, how am I to be sure that I'm simply not taking the values and norms of contemporary society, which may not be objectively moral, but I think they're moral because that's how I grew up. How do I know that? How do I know that my morals are actually objectively true?
1: So there are two ways to answer that question. The first is maybe there's no way to know that your morals are objectively true, just like there's no way to know that your halakhic interpretation is correct, and the premise of the question that certainty is attainable is incorrect. Right? That's right, that's um that's answer number one. Answer number two is you could give the same historical survey of methods of interpreting historical texts and say, right, how do you know how do I know that my model of interpretation, right? You know, the once upon a time, you know, there wasn't brisk, and then there was brisk, and then there was, was Pilple, and then right. So in general, I would say uh, that the belief that Torah can give you certainty is a fundamental violation of Lobo Um Right? I think that's the way that's the way I frame it. Right? The Torah doesn't promise you certainty, and I don't know that I would want certainty because certainty is like you know the villain turning down, like the villain turning down the Malach teaching him all all the all the Torah and dreams. So he doesn't have to make the effort. So I think that part of being a human being, the Torah imposes upon us the responsibility to make good decisions. And certainty takes away that, you know, a, a magic formula where you always get to certainty takes that away. Um, so I, yeah, I don't know. I, I admit that this is a question that when I was younger, I obsessed about for a long time. Um, and to some extent, that was because I knew a lot more other things before I knew Torah. And over the years, for better or for worse, because I've forgotten the other stuff and my and I've been more <laughs> professionally in Torah. So the balance has shifted. Maybe that's what it is. Or maybe it's just one of those paradoxes that you grow to live with in life. I don't obsess about that question anymore. It doesn't really bother me so much.
0: I asked you before, how do you relate to Purim? Now I'll say, how does one celebrate Purim? Now, what should we be thinking about when we celebrate? And how does one celebrate properly, including the notion of destroying Haman, destroying evil, while at the same time celebrating our redemption from potential genocide?
1: Uh it's like a really—it's a really interesting question, and I'm not usually an ex- you know an experiential expert. Um, but I think there may be. You know, here I just say very, very tentatively. Yeah, you know, it may be that there's a value in a day of the year when you, you know, when you let go of nuance, right? It was, you know, when you say, "Look for today," and I'm not and It's not a Masa thing, right? We're just running. We're just running plays and, you know, and writing and, write, and writing literature. Um, so there's a day in which you can sort of um, live in a world you know, in a world of black and white because you need, you need a moment of black and white. In order to go back into a really complex world um, and be able to make and be able to make decisions, I think that's probably you know I say you know Purim is a day in which look they tried to kill us that's terrible, right? We got right we got there first that's great. Um, <laughs> you know, um, right? I think I think that would be the uh, you know and whereas you know every every other day you're, you know I would be focusing on well maybe we should be like angels and not you know and not be and not be, not be not be not be rejoicing at the death of the wicked you know what for one day is not so terrible. Now, if it turned out that, that, you know, that turned out, you know, if people started going on bloody rampages on Purim because they started taking it as a real world thing, I would have the same objection to that as I have against taking Mechiyad Malik in real world consequences. I think that that's probably true in my own experience, right? That what I enjoy about Purim is the, you know, and even though I don't get drunk, um, is a day, you know, maybe I'm not going to go so far as the Abed ralatov. But at least I can get to a point maybe when I think there's just Ra and
0: tov, you know. Well, my own understanding, I think yesterday the Misha Baruch said something very similar, is that Adelay Dabba bin Araham and Baruch Mordechai is that Baruch often means to add and auror means to detract. So you can't tell the difference in the world. What's better, to add good or detract from evil? Which means I'm already probably the say right now because I still don't know the answer. So perhaps <laughs> yeah, that's where it is. Course.
1: I mean, when I insert a postmodernist moment, of course, Beyrach is often used, you know, it's often used, uh, also.
0: <laughs> well, if we're going to go postmodernist, I actually read something by Rav Shagar this week where he compares Adlo Yada, the idea of getting drunk to the point that you do not know the difference between cursed as Haman and blessed is Mordechai, with Reshadlo It Yada, the Kabbalistic concept of the mind that's too high to be knowable, the highest level of Atik, which itself is the highest level of the highest of the Sirot. Whatever, there's a lot to be said there, but anyway, Rabbi Ari Clapper, this has been very, very enlightening. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for joining me today and have a happy Purim.
1: Thank you much. This was really, it's really enormous, enormously pleasurable. I hope we'll do it again.
0: Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit JewishCoffeeHouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more you'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop any time, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. on JewishCoffeeHouse.com.